You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I want to give you a moment before I read the scripture to set this text in a context and also to identify yourself with the scene that we're given in the passage. This is a vision that God gives Ezekiel. It's a prophetic dream. But we're not left to guess why God gives Ezekiel this vision. Uh, Following the vision in the the latter half uh, of the section, there is an interpretation that, that tells us plainly. So if you'd like, I would invite you to open up your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 37. <clears throat> and our text will be uh, verses 1 through 10, but I'd just like to call to your attention verse 11, which is the first in this section, of, of, which interprets the vision uh, to Ezekiel and to God's people. Historically, the context you need to understand is that Israel is in exile. They've lost everything. They are not in Jerusalem. They are scattered, the beginning of the diaspora. And this community is in Babylon. And the temple has been destroyed. They're in exile. Relationally, here's a different context. It's that they've lost hope for their relationships. Let me read verse 11 to you, just this. Then he said to me, that's the Lord speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. Then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So that tells us the who of the passage, of of the vision. The who is the whole house of Israel. That community that God has called for himself, the, the people of God. That's who this is about. And then he, he gives Ezekiel the, the lament that Ezekiel would know all too well because he ministers in, in the context of this uh, failed community, a community in exile. This is what the Israelites are saying in Babylon and, and other places. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are cut off completely. In other words, in exile, this is what the people have been saying perhaps even praying. Our bones are dried up. This is the occasion now for the vision. God's taking their own words and he's building this dream that Ezekiel has out of their lament. So if the who of the text is the house of Israel, the what of the text are the dry bones. And I think for us, that is isolation, disconnection. The Israelites had two stages to their burial procedures. Um, the first stage, after a person was, died, was they would, they would take the body to uh, a tomb or a family crypt, and there would be places carved out of the rock for bodies to be left, and there they would be reverentially laid, but they would decay. And it would take some time, and they may not go back again until they had another family member die, and on that occasion, then they would take the bones, the remnants that were left, because now the, the skin was gone and the flesh was gone and the ligaments uh, would be gone and uh, there would be nothing but bones, dry bones. And because the Jews uh, looked forward to the resurrection from the dead, they wanted to conserve these bones. They would take them and they would set them in usually a chest called an ossuary, 
right in the, in the center of this tomb. And there they would rather efficiently try to lay these bones in such a way that they could get the maximum number in. So to do that, they'd be separated. They wouldn't lie like skeletons. They'd be dismembered bones, disconnected bones, packed. That's what dry bones are. And so when these exiles say, we are nothing but dry bones, they say, we hardly are a community. We're not even people anymore. We're just, we're just lost our whole sense of being the people of God. We're isolated from one another. Why? The why of the passage is this. Our hope is lost. It's not just that bad things have happened to us. It's that we've given up hope in this situation. We've been doing this for too long. We've done poorly for so long that now we look at uh, this plan that God has had to bless a nation, to bless all nations, and our hope is now lost. And that's why we feel like dry bones. And then finally, the how in this context is that we are cut off completely. In the Hebrew, it's kind of a puzzling way it's put, at least to me anyways. It says it's, we're cut off with respect to ourselves. This language of cut off is language that could be used of, of the separation that death brings into our lives. We're, we're cut off from the living when we die. It can also be the language of judgment being cut off from God's favor. Where hope is lost, we're completely cut off. And at the bottom, therefore, of this isolation is most fundamentally a spiritual disconnection. We've lost our contact really with one another because we've lost our contact with God. And it's into this setting that God says, no, 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 no. Your problem is you're not seeing enough. And God gives a vision to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel shares it with the people in exile. And I want to ask you to engage your imagination now as I read the text. And to help with that, I've asked the musicians to join me in this. Because this is a noisy text. You have to understand that this dream he has is a noisy dream. So it wouldn't be right to read it in silence. But uh, I want you to, to engage your imagination around the places in which you have lost hope. And in particular, the relationships that are most strained in, in your life and around your life. And I invite you, therefore, to think of those. You may follow along or may choose to close your eyes and just listen as I read. This is Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, Oh, Lord God, you you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded 
And as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet a vast multitude kind of used to speaking with, with a, a brass uh, ensemble behind me, and I'm wondering if I could get these guys to come home with me when I have some helpful advice for my teenage kids or uh, possibly a gentle correct, loving corrective for my wife. You know, just a little bit of background reinforcement to help the message land. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with me on that. But I, I can't think of any better day than Pentecost Sunday to reflect on what God does to renew our relationships. The truth of of Pentecost is that healthy relationships, kingdom relationships, the relationships that God is calling us to in the church are not generated by the people of God. They are received as God's gift to his people in Jesus Christ. He gives us, he gives us relationships in which he is present and which please him and which glorify him. Well, that really is the simple message of Pentecost, that the Lord himself is in our midst, bringing the reconciling power of Jesus Christ into our lives. In so many ways, until we receive that gift, we just miss one another. We live in a day where uh, perhaps the, the greatest threat and challenge to our relationships is this idea that you... You could just uh, expand your social network with endless numbers of, quote, friends, but broadcast yourself. And yet, even as we have more and more friends, we feel more and more isolated and alone and misunderstood. J. Grant Howard, in his book, The Trauma of Transparency, shares a, an anonymous poem. He, someone writes, Today I met a man, but not really. Rather, our paths crossed. The private paths of our own separate worlds made a juncture and we were there. We told our impersonal names and shook each other's hand warmly and firmly to convey our interest, which wasn't there. We shared our views on the weather or politics, the latest news and other foreign things, which were not there. And when the conversation lagged, we said, well, glad to have met you. Same here. We lied smiled, extended our hands again, and parted, glad to be on our separate ways from our little meeting. Today I met a man, but not really. 
The New York Times this fall did an article on uh, authenticity because the writer in the magazine was noting that we live in a day where politicians and celebrities are projecting themselves as authentic. I mean, our culture craves authenticity because it is one of the very things that we don't have in our relationships. So the article talks about the irony of constructing authentic selves or having a calculated authenticity. It, it, it discussed a, uh, a panel that was being organized for the South by Southwest Music Festival. And the description of the panel runs like this. How to be authentic and human without embarrassing yourself. Ah, because there's the risk, right? We all know that we can little afford to be vulnerable about who we really are Because who I really am is all I really have. And if I show it to you and you should reject that, then what do I have left? And so, yes, how can I be authentic? How can I construct authenticity and project authenticity without embarrassing myself, of course? Without actually letting you in to know me or that I might be known by you or that you might be known by me. The article quotes Nicki Minaj, the hip-hop singer, who says, I am definitely playing a role. They don't pay to see me roll out of bed with crust in my eyes and say, hey, guys, this is me, authentic. They pay for a show. And whether your friends are paying for a show or not, it's what you and I tend to give them when when we share ourselves with them in relationship. We have this expression, fake it until you make it. And that can be helpful in some context, but I want to suggest to you that today we're doing much more faking it than making it. And we're feeling very lonely. The loneliest person, by those of you who are single, the loneliest person in your zip code is not a single person. It's a married person. It's somebody in relationship. It's somebody who may have 2,000 friends, but know that they are very much alone. It's a story about a new lieutenant, newly minted. He was very proud of his new office and uh, authority, and they gave him actually a new physical office, and he's sitting there at the desk, and he's just so proud of himself. He says, I want to make sure all the other privates know who I have become now. So he uh, says, I I, I picks up the phone and uh, pretends to be talking to a general so that when the first private comes through his office, you know, he'll be awfully impressed with this guy's authority. He hears the clicking of the heels coming down the hall, and he picks up the phone, and he says, Yes, sir. Yes, general. You can count on me. I'll get it done. I am your man. And he hangs up the phone with authority. And they says, Private, what is it that you want? And the private says, Well, they sent me down here to hook up your phone, sir. <laughs> it's an awkward moment. Faking it, but not making it. And so often, the, it's, sadly, it's in the church of all places where we seem least free to be most authentic and we do the most faking and sometimes the least making. A couple years ago, I came across a small group and one of the members of the group said, uh, one of our uh, guys just got divorced. I said, oh, that's awful. I said, how long have you known he's had marriage troubles? Oh, we just found out this week. Wait a minute. You just found out this week he's getting divorced. You've had someone in your group. How long have you been meeting? About 10 years. You've had somebody in your group who has been going through absolute hell. And you didn't know it. Whose marriage was falling apart and you didn't know it. 
I tell you, that's a man who's been faking it and not making it. And that's a group that's been faking it and not making it. And don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm a big proponent of small groups. I hope you've caught that. But there's a big difference between a small group and community. And, and, and if you're in a small group, it's time for you to start figuring out what is Christian community all about and receive that gift and participate with that gift. These Israelites were not making it in exile either. They had lost their hope for the call that God had given. And they had lost their hope for their community. And that's why God gives this vision to Ezekiel. Because he wants Ezekiel to see differently. It just occurred to me this week as I was studying this passage that nothing really changes in this story. It's actually not a story about dead people who've come back to life. It's just a vision. There aren't actually any dead people. I mean, no actual skeletons were harmed in the filming of this little vignette. Uh, I don't know how this works for prophets. I'm not one, and I've never had a vision like this. But apparently, I don't know if he's asleep or something, he gets into some kind of a trance. But somehow God gets his attention and says, Ezekiel, I want to roll this tape for you. Watch this. And he does. God, therefore, then releases him from that vision and sends him back out into the people. And nothing's changed in the community. The only change has been inside Ezekiel. Now he's able to see more than he was able to see before. And he walks back now into this community and he has to try to tell them about his dream. Well, is it a good dream or a bad dream, Ezekiel? Yes. I mean, it was horrible. It's the worst thing you've ever... The valley with bones. It was like an army. It just... Killed everybody, every Israelite that ever lived. It was the Holocaust. And there wasn't even anybody left to bury. It was the worst dream. But it was the best dream. Because every single one of those bones started to come back together. And I saw a great multitude, a mighty army, a great strength, a host of all of God's blessed and beloved people standing again as the people of God. And he's got to go among his exiled and broken friends and, and describe to them that their reality is more than they think. And that God's presence and power is greater than they realize. That this rattling sound that he heard in the dream, which was, I don't know, the sound of a wind and bones crashing into one another. It's, it's an ugly, horrifying sound, but also a beautiful, wonderful sound. The sound that continues to ring in his ears is the reality of an exiled community. And that same sound is our reality as well. And I want to invite you into three lessons that I think we can take away as followers of Jesus Christ from this passage. Three things that point us to Jesus and, and invite us into renewal of our own relationships. And the first one is this. It's really um, that in relationship we are embraced in weakness. Did you see the question that really begins this whole scene? In verse 3. He, the Lord, said to me, Ezekiel, mortal, can these bones live? Mortal, can these bones live? In Hebrew, the, the, uh, the, word, the phrase mortal is ben Adam, son of Adam, human being, fully aware of all of your limitations. Do you think these bones could live? I love that question. Because I think everything within inside of me, if I had been asked that question at that moment, would say no. These are bones doubly dead. They're dry. And to make sure that 
Ezekiel understands that. It's the Lord takes him on a, a little tour of the valley. He led me all around them, it says. Ezekiel, I want you to look. Look at every bone. I want you to see the whole mess. I want you to make sure there, there isn't anybody pinned under a rock who still has a little sinew attached, a little bit of human potential left in them. Somebody who's there kicking a little bit and says, I'm not dead yet. No, they're all dead. They're bones. Do you think anything is here that could allow the impossible to become possible? Could they live? And Ezekiel, of course, he wants to say, this is a no-brainer. No. But he doesn't. Because he knows that human weakness is not the end of a relationship. It's the beginning. In our weakness, we are uniquely ready to reach out to God and depend on God to do what only God can do. That's why authentic relationships require people to move into them, honest about their limitations, disabusing themselves of their own capacity to succeed in that relationship. Jean Vanier, who's the, uh, the man who founded L'Arche, the community in which Henry Nouwen ministered for many years, uh, had an interesting benediction that he offered when people were ordained. Henry Nouwen, who referred to himself as a wounded healer, notice that, aware of his weaknesses, and yet receiving the power of the Spirit of God in all of his interactions. Henry Nouwen was ordained by Jean Vanier, and as he lay before Jean, he would hear these words, which was the benediction he pronounced over the ordination candidates. May all your expectations be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withered into nothingness that you may experience the powerlessness and poverty of a child and sing and dance in the love of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Those who would dance in that circle of relationship must know the limitations and the weaknesses of their flesh. Oh, Lord God, you know. Rightly, he doesn't say no. Because he's just willing to think that God might be able to do the impossible. And so we see that an authentic relationship is one that has room for weakness. The second thing is that an authentic relationship is one in which we understand that we are held in promise. Verse 4. Then he, the Lord, said to me, Ezekiel, prophesy. To, to prophesy is to speak for God. It's to speak God's good news into a, a situation. It's to take God's grace and to vocalize it, to verbalize it to pronounce it in the midst of the devastation that defies good news. Prophesy. Speak to these bones. I want you to hear the, the humor in this. I, I, I mean, picture Ezekiel in this valley now going, really? Uh, walking over bones that just lay, and, and no one's there, and you know, it's hard enough to go on a hike and speak out loud, but to actually be in a valley of dead bones is a horrible thing and to begin to have to verbalize good news in disaster. And, 
and, and knowing that bones don't have ears and no one's listening. It's, I've spoken to a lot of people, a lot of congregations, but never to dead people before, never to dry bones before. And I think the Israelites, when they hear Ezekiel tell the story, will be laughing at this point. This is the punchline. Oh, as old as Ezekiel, he's finally come to find his true congregation. You know, dry bones. And there is some humor. And the point is that we ought not to take the devastation of our lives and the brokenness of our weakness too seriously. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, writes this about hope. He says, hope reminds us not to absolutize the present. I like that. In other words, the situation that you're facing right now that just looks so resistant, don't absolutize it. Don't let it have the final word. Hope reminds us not to absolutize the present, not to take it too seriously, not to treat it too honorably, because it will not last. Not before this God, not before the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at your relationships, whether that's dating, a relationship, and you go, can these bones live? Or a relationship with an estranged family member, you say, oh, will I ever be reconciled with my daughter? Or strained relationships at work, and you think, is this team ever going to achieve anything? Or a friendship that you think, will he ever come back to me? Or conflicts in the world, and you wonder, could there be peace? Or a racial divide that just seems absolutely blocked? Or frankly, even a church, and we say, can these dry bones live? We have to recognize that we don't have the answer to that question, but God does. And he has spoken his word. He has spoken the prophetic word. He has spoken for himself in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, his answer is yes. Yes. God's promise holds us in the midst of our unreconciliation. And we don't know exactly the words that, Deuter- that uh, Ezekiel uses. He-, he may just speak very specifically about the flesh and the skin and so forth. But I think it's highly likely that he steps back from that and he recalls what a priest in training would know, the promises of God in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 4 or chapter 30, where it had been foretold that one day Israel would find itself in exile, but a faithful God would never let go of them and would bring them back and restore them. That same faithful God has hold of you and me this morning. Wherever we are, holds us in promise. Therefore, we can take the risk to be authentic in relationship. In relationship, we're embraced in weakness. We're held in promise. Thirdly, in relationship, we are bound by the Spirit. The drama seems to come to an end for a moment. Did you notice that there's a kind of a a crisis because God had promised to do all this stuff like make the it's kind of reverse the desiccation process uh, first the sinew and, and then the flesh and then the skin and then I will breathe within them and that's what you want to have happen because as a Hebrew you understand that human beings are not just physical creatures but they're soulish things Adam the first man had been taken from the dirt and God had scooped and, and formed him physically but then breathed into Adam the life of a soul and a spirit suggests that we can never be whole without attention to the soulish dimension, the spiritual part of our uh, being and identity. 
And so there's a kind of a tragic moment here when these bodies are constructed and they're physically there, still lying on the ground, that they're whole, but there's no breath. What's wrong? And Ezekiel stops. And this moment is a moment of punctuation, I believe, where the Lord wants Ezekiel to know that it's not the flesh that that prevails in our relationship, but the spirit of the living God. And so now he says, you, Ezekiel, you call. You call the breath. And you may know that the Hebrew word for breath is ruach. It's also the Hebrew word for spirit and wind. And so there's a great, this is a pun, play on that word all the way through this passage. It's about the ruach of God. Call the ruach of God. Call the breath. Call the great wind. Call the spirit from the four corners of the earth to come. See, we're bound together by the Spirit. It's a Spirit that revitalizes, that refreshes, that renews us. Who is the Spirit? The Spirit is Jesus Christ's own Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, from the Father, sent by the Son. The Spirit is the one who makes the, the noise on Pentecost Sunday as, the, as these very weak, very frightened Men and women gather, 70 of them in an upper room to pray. Yes, they're praying, but I'm sure they're also assessing the damage right now. Abandoned by Jesus, surrounded by hostiles, uh, on the run, locked the door. No future to think of at the moment, just kind of stuck. And in the midst of this, then there is this loud rumbling, this rattling sound. The windows begin to shake and the great wind of God comes. To, to, to be present, that Jesus Christ himself might be present to his people. That the Spirit is the presence of God in our lives so that we don't worship a distant Savior, but that we know he's within us. Carl Bright writes of the Spirit in this way. He says, if Jesus Christ no longer just lives in a historical or heavenly or a theological or ecclesiastical remoteness from me, if Jesus Christ approaches me and takes possession of me, the result will be that I hear his word, that promise, and that finally I may have hope for myself and for all others. Are you ready to call the Spirit into action in your life, into your relationships as well, that we need not be locked by the impossibilities hidden behind doors in our fears and insecurities but might be invited out into his joyful life that we might open our hands and receive the gift of reconciliation. And, you know, it's important to note that when the Spirit comes into your life and is active in your life, he does not resolve all relational difficulties just like that. That's sometimes our expectation, but you need to understand that this loud rattling noise is the loud noise of the early church The reason we have a New Testament is because the apostles were writing to churches that were experiencing trouble, relational hardships. There's trouble in Corinth. There's trouble in Thessalonica. There's trouble in Galatia. People are in Philippi. Leaders are not getting along. There's a noise, but it is the noise of the reconstructing work of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in the midst of weak and vulnerable sinners who are being redeemed. I expect to hear that noise in our midst here at UPC. You know, Jesus Christ, the living word, 
stepped into great relational trauma one day. He was on his way to Jerusalem in the final hours of his life. The uh, dangers increased by the hour as he approached. On his way, he would pass through Bethany. Before he got to Bethany, word came to him that his friend, his beloved friend, Lazarus, was sick. And Jesus, we don't think he's going to make it. And Jesus, you had better get there fast. And do you know what Jesus does? He delays. Unthinkable. Jesus will cry at the death of Lazarus. Shortest verse in the Bible. He wept. He'll be in a fury of the devastation that death wreaks on this family and on his own relationship. And yet he delays. Why doesn't Jesus run to the rescue? Why doesn't Jesus save Lazarus from dying? This is the question that Lazarus' sister, Martha, presses upon Jesus when he finally arrives. Where were you? You could have made a difference in this relationship. And Jesus says, I waited. Because I want you to know, I am not the one who keeps people from getting sick. Oh no, I am so much more than that. I am the resurrection and the life. I want you to know I am the one who looks death in the face and brings back life. That's why I waited. And he approaches the tomb. The body's been dead for days. And Jesus steps up with tears in his eyes and he says, Lazarus, arise. And the dead comes back to life. And I want to say to you and to me, That if Jesus decides not to spare you when you are sick, not to save you from relational trauma, know that maybe, just maybe, he does it because he wants to convince you that he is the one who brings life out of death. And he does it with churches too. He's just not that interested in keeping UPC from having to face trauma or death. Because what he wants is a church that knows he is the one who brings life out of death. He wants us to be people who know how to face death, to look through death and find his hope so that he can say to us, to our dry bones, UPC, arise. And so we will. And so we will. He is faithful. And that's our call to share hope by being alive together. What greater witness Would a world who knows nothing of authentic relationships and is so hungry for them to see a community of people in their own neighborhood who love one another, though they hurt each other, and though they are weak and afraid and sometimes dismayed. Our call to action, therefore, I believe, comes to us from the the Apostle Paul, who says, you know, I see a body in which every ligament and muscle is building itself up into Jesus Christ, the head. It's a body that's coming to life. And here's what you do. You speak the truth in love. You speak the words of God's good news with a loving compassion in your heart. And the Holy Spirit, that one spirit of Jesus, will raise us up from the dead. A quick uh, closing story. Henry Nouwen wanted to visit with one of his friends, Trevor. 
Henry had known Trevor from uh, their friendship at uh, this community of handicapped people. Trevor um, had a mental challenge and was uh, at a hospital near Toronto for a psych evaluation. Henry Nowen would be traveling through on a speaking tour, and he wrote a letter to the head of the hospital saying, I'd really like to see my friend Trevor. Could we have lunch together? Head of the hospital said, of course. And while you're here, uh, Dr. Nowen, would you be kind enough to visit with some of the staff and the faculty and even some local pastors? We'd be honored to have lunch with you. And Henry Nowen said, of course. When Henry Nowen arrived at the hospital, they welcomed him in a lavishly decorated room, the golden room, and he saw well-dressed people, professionals, but no Trevor. And Henry said uh, to the head of the hospital, where's Trevor? And he said, well, you could, you could be with Trevor later, but we thought maybe you'd have lunch with those of us here. Well, he said, well, could Trevor be invited? He said, no, tr- no, we don't allow the patients in this room or to mingle with the staff. And Henry said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I'm here to have lunch with my friend Trevor. And if Trevor can't be here, then I'm afraid I'll have to have lunch with him and not with you. And it was an awkward silence. And the uh, head of the hospital said, well, let's see if we can find Trevor. <laughs> and they invite Trevor. And, and, you know, let's be honest, Trevor is awkward when he comes into the room. And it's though no time had passed. He says to Henry, hi, Henry, I'd like to have a Coke. And uh, so they get a Coke. And everybody else is drinking champagne and wine in these glasses. And they gather around the table. And Henry's lost in conversation for a moment with his neighbor and hardly notices that Trevor has stood up at the table. Sweet Trevor now, loud Trevor now, is about to embarrass everybody. He raises his glass and he says, we should have a toast. He's got his Coke up in the air and all the professionals are looking up and down and thinking, oh no, what do we do with this poor soul? Hiding behind their degrees and their dignity and the decorum of the moment, uh, they don't notice that Trevor is unintimidated and very authentically presses on. Let's have a toast. Everybody raise their glasses. Reluctantly, people comply. They raise their glasses. And then Trevor says, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy, come on, everybody. And uh, reluctantly, one by one, someone starts to sing. And then another, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. And before long, inhibitions are lost. And they begin to sing the song with Trevor. And they're all joyfully singing. If you're happy and you know it, then your glass should surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. Henry Nowen would remember that moment as a moment that revealed to him the presence of Jesus Christ in one simple, authentic gesture from Trevor. He writes, quote, Trevor did what nobody else could have done. He transformed a group of strangers into a community of love by his simple, unselfconscious blessing. He, a meek man, became the living Christ among us. Grant that God allow us to be that kind of people as well. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bring before you this morning an offering of brokenness. We bring before you our disappointments, our rebellions, our sinfulness, and our failure. And we thank you that you have taken all these things with you into the grave. That with you we might step out of our tombs into the bright sunlight of day and know a new hope. Thank you for the descent of your spirit. Thank you that you're present here. You pray with and for us, though we are inadequate. You make yourself our healer, 
You hold us in our woundedness. You invite us to have hope and you release us for new relationships. So may we be a people who give witness to your presence here in this city. We pray it uh, in your name and we live it through these tithes and offerings and the commission with which you send us out today. For Jesus' sake, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.